Hey, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Energy Never Dies. My name is Tamara Gillespie, and my co-host is Hannah Kofelt. We are lifelong friends that have a passion for living authentic and meaningful lives. However, as wonderful as that sounds, we all know that life can be incredibly hard and unpredictable. This podcast is our attempt at working through life and our energies in their rawest form. Hey everyone, this is Hannah. Our hope is that in sharing and taking responsibility for our energy, we'll encourage our listeners to do the same. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. Okay, well, it has been a long time coming. We took a break for, I guess we'll call it maternity leave. For me to have a baby and get used to mom life and Tamara has been transitioning from not being or being on chemo to not being on chemo and about ready to get back on chemo. Um, Those are the two small updates with us. Um, We'll have an episode to follow just to kind of talk about where we are in our journeys. But today we have a special guest. Her name is Deidre Logan. And for the listeners in Northwest Kansas that I, we have a high percentage of listeners here in this area, you will probably remember her as Deidre Jarvis. And if you have been following her on Facebook or Instagram, you'll know that she has talked about recently a very, very personal story about her time in the military and being sexually assaulted. So that is what we're going to focus on today. Um, but just to give her a little bit of an inter- a proper introduction as far as the military goes, uh, she was ranked staff sergeant. She entered the military in 2005. She exited with an honorable discharge in 2013. And um, a tour that she did that's very notable is Operation Iraqi Freedom from 2007 to 2009. And if anyone in the military is listening to this, you probably remember her as Staff Sergeant Stonerock. And one little additional information is she just recently, last week, was that right? Last week you went and did a press conference in Florida? Was it last week? It's two weeks ago now. Two weeks ago, okay. Two weeks ago she did a press conference in Florida to highlight um, what happened to her and to talk about... Um, how this is a problem in the military and we're going to talk about that too so there's a lot to cover um Tamara where do you think we should start like with the story or do you have anything Um, at the top of your head that you want to ask her as we start I mean I do I do think we need like a um a quick because not everybody has followed the Facebook post I'm sure you know um obviously we have so we know Daedra's story I think she should do a quick um you know not that she wants to relive it every time she you know has um you know we talk about this um but I think she should do a quick rundown of um what happened who um you know basically what she wants to get out about it um and then I do have questions following that I think you know we need our listeners to understand um, the backstory. The backstory a little bit here. So, yeah. Deidre, if you want to do, a, you don't have to go into, you know, details or anything, but um, just a quick rundown of it, and then we'll we'll kind of ask questions from there as well. Perfect. So, um, 
so I can I can kind of give the reader's digest version of it, the cliff notes. Um, I think it's important to note at this point, though. So, like, when you guys are talking to me, I understand that everybody, like, this is a topic that is, it's different for everybody that you're going to talk to. And each victim is going to be in a different place. Um, since I've done this, I've gotten a lot of messages about women who will never be able to tell their story. Women who have found some hope and they maybe one day will be able to tell their story. And women who are like, holy crap, no, like, it's time to tell my story. So um, I appreciate that you guys are, you know, considerate of what I've been through and and you don't want to put me through any undue stress. But at this point, because it, I feel like it is time to get loud, the details matter, right? Like the context yep. of all this matters. So, Absolutely. Um, and I'm willing to tell this story to whoever will listen because my case was handled so poorly and highlights so well what the problems are in the military and what what victims go through that I think it needs to be put out there. Um, and the good news is, is that from that press conference, um, it is gaining traction. There are now people on the Hill who want to listen. There is a governor in Florida who's interested in creating change. There's a state representative in Florida who wants to create change. And hopefully my story will become, you know, it'll fade into the background and the new story will be that, you know, their case was different. That person healed better. That person was treated better with more empathy. So, um, so the night that it happened, um, I had gone to a military dining in, which for people who don't know is just a formal fancy supper, but it's military soldiers only. No dates, no outside personnel. Um, there's a lot of tradition that goes into it. Uh, we do toasts to fallen soldiers. We do toasts to our leadership, toast to the commander in chief, those who went before us, those who come after us. Um, it's supposed to be like a bonding <clears throat> kind of experience <clears throat> for for soldiers and it's to pass down those traditions from you know our sergeant majors um you know clear down to our youngest brand new privates and so we um we did all the toasts and followed all the traditions and then you know as soldiers do and this is it, it's pretty common a lot of people will be like well soldiers drink a lot we do um we're loud and we're rowdy not to say all of us, um, the military is kind of its own microcosm in the fact that it's, we have people of all types. There's loud and rowdy, there's shy and quiet, there's good leaders, there's bad leaders, there's good soldiers, there's bad soldiers. Um, but uh, if you know me, I'm one of the loud and rowdy ones. And so we went to the bar as I was fixing to leave with one of my friends. Where, was my... where was this? Like what state? Were you in the country? Yeah. So I was in... Um, I was stationed at Fort Carson, Colorado, which is the army base in Fort Carson uh, or in Colorado Springs. And Colorado Springs has four military bases. So there's, well, five actually. So there's Fort Carson, which is army, Fort Peter, or, uh, Peterson Air Force Base, Air Force, Shriver Air Force Base, Air Force, the Air Force Academy, which is like their, their college, their military officers. And then we have NORAD. So there is a lot of military in Colorado Springs. Okay. Um, so my DD was one of my friends. She was an NCO in the same unit as me. 
Um, and at this time, I worked in the hospital. So I was actually um, the assistant in COIC of the Department of Radiology. Um, and a gentleman by the name of Staff Sergeant Burns came up. And when he walked up, I had honestly, I had never talked to this individual in my life. I had seen him maybe once or twice at training events because I was a training NCO for our unit. If I had talked to him, it was like a, hey, what's up in passing? We had never had a conversation. Um, but he was in the military. He was in my unit. Seemed like a you know, decent human, I guess. I should also throw in that I was really naive at that time. I trusted pretty much everyone, especially soldiers. Um, How old were you? Oh, 2011. Hannah, you're going to make me tell my age. Sorry. <laughs> uh, what was I, 20, 26, 27? Okay. Um, 27. So I, uh, he said, you know, hey, Stone Rock, where's everybody going? And I kind of rattled off. There was a lot of people going a lot of different places because, again, you know, Everybody's got their own taste in bars. So I said, well, we're going to Copperhead Road. And he was like, cool. Can I come? And I was like, yeah, sure. You can meet us there. Um, so he meets us there. And we get to the bar. And I bought the first round of drinks. And he bought the second round of drinks. And then somebody bought, this is back when they had, like, the communal drinks in bars. Like the big fishbowl thing with a million straws. Mm-hmm. someone bought one of those and I remember taking like four drinks out of it. So that would make total for the amount of drinks that I had all night long. I had the toasting glass of wine, the two beers at the bar, um, a few drinks out of the fishbowl. And I think I might've had a beer at the dinner, but that was over the course of five, six, six hours. Cause the dining in lasted several hours. So and you're not like a new drinker, so that amount of alcohol I, can process, I was, yeah. I was not a new drinker. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just feel I like some people to, might think that's a lot, but if you are a drinker, it's that's pretty like yeah. keeping you like level. Well, that's also with dinner. So the right. dining in is actually a dinner. So the toasting glass of wine is literally just like it's for the toasts. That's what it's for. And then one beer with dinner. And then three hours later, two beers and a couple sips out of a fishbowl. The reason we're making such a big deal out of this part is because people will, like, really focus on how drunk was she? You know, how many drinks did she had? Does she normally drink? Did she eat? Which is the really sad thing. And I think it needs to be mentioned that it does not matter how much a person has had to drink. And I could have been absolutely blacked out drunk. In right. the case that somebody is blacked out drunk, that person cannot give consent. That is right. by legal definition, that would still be rape in the third degree. Right. So just because someone drinks does not still not a go ahead. And I who agree. were you besides um uh the Burns guy, who else was like sitting there with you, like in your presence there? Like who was with you guys? Um, so that was my battle buddy. Um her nickname was Darby. Um, she, our husbands worked together in, in the special forces unit and she worked in the department of emergency medicine. We were training NCOs together. We worked pretty close together. So, um, she ended up later telling me things that like, I did not remember 
like about being at the bar. I le- the whole night is gone. I don't remember it. What I, I remember him saying something to me because they had me sing the national anthem, which is pretty common for military functions. And he had come up to me at one point and was like, hey, we should sing the national anthem together. And I was like, hey, I'm in a country bar and I really don't give a shit about talking to you. I'm not going to lie. And that's about the last thing that I remember. I don't remember going home. I don't remember leaving the bar. I don't have any idea how long we stayed there. I don't, I don't remember. Um, so apparently there was a conversation had about how he lived outside of the Springs by like, it was like a 40 minute drive. And, um, he was going to drive home, I guess. Well, Darby was staying at my house and I was like, dude, no, don't drink and drive. So for anyone who's ever been in the military, a DUI in the military is like the worst possible thing you could do. I can actually attest to the fact that they will treat you more like shit for getting a DUI than if you rape another human. And I have not a lot of idea why that is, but it it is so frowned upon. Like, it will kill a military career. So, um, But you're telling us this part of the story. This is a part where you don't remember. So this is coming from Darby? Yeah. Um, okay. So... I had offered to let him stay at my house that um, I had a guest bedroom that way he didn't drink and drive. He didn't hurt somebody else. He didn't kill his own career and you know, he could stay in the guest bedroom. So she got us both home. She says that she put me in my bed. I don't remember any of that. She said she put him upstairs in the guest bedroom. I don't remember any of that. Was he intoxicated? She states that he was. Yes. Okay. Um, None of this matters, but people want to know if you're giving the details. Yeah. That's why I'm asking. Um, I don't care either way. He's still a douchebag. He's a wonderful person. More than that, but okay. Um, So she she stayed there all night until I think it was around five or six. She got up to leave to go get her daughter. And so um, I remember waking up. And I couldn't tell you exactly what time it was. I woke up and my dogs were scratching because they were in their kennel. And I went to go let them out. And walking down the hallway from my bedroom to try to get to the back door to let my dogs out, I hit every wall on the way. Like Mm -hmm. I, And it was the weirdest feeling. And I couldn't explain how it felt for, it took weeks. Um... It, I didn't feel drunk. Like, mm-hmm. I know what being drunk feels like, and it didn't feel like that. I just, something did not feel right. And my biggest thought was, I just want to go back to sleep. Like, I was so, I just felt exhausted in a weird way. And so I let the dogs out. When I turned around, he was standing there with his pants unbuttoned, not wearing a shirt, which is weird. Um, I went back to my room. And tried to go back to sleep and I had shut my door and he knocked on my door and tried to come in my bedroom. And I remember him complaining about how hot it was upstairs in the guest bedroom. And I was like, I don't care. Go away. Get out. And he tried to crawl in my bed. I was like, fine, I will go upstairs. I tell you all of that part, but I didn't remember that part for about six weeks 
the part where I left my bedroom, I could, I did not remember how it was that I got upstairs. Mm -hmm. What I remember was I woke up in the guest bedroom upstairs with my pants down around my ankles, not having any clue how it was that I got there. And my house was empty. Mm. And so I had called Darby and asked her where she was. And she said that she had just dropped him off and that she was on her way home. And I said, I think you need to come back. And I wait, she dropped him off. So she was there. She had come back to pick him up. Oh, okay. Um, so she had, she had left to go pick up her daughter and then she had come back to pick him up to take him back to his vehicle so that he could go home. Um, and it was, I called her after she dropped him off and okay. she said, do you feel okay? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. Like I legit, I don't know what happened. I don't know how I got here. And it is a panic feeling when you wake up and you have no clue. Mm-hmm. Um, so she convinced me because at this point I did have an idea as to what had happened given that I wasn't wearing Did you feel pain? Some, yes, but not like, I mean, uh, people think rape can be so violent and it's got to be this dark alley violent thing. Right, right. You would absolutely know. And, And no, I mean, yes, pain because he tried to have anal sex. But not not in a way that it was like, oh, my God, did this really happen? Or, like, I knew what happened. I was still very much confused, I guess. So mm-hmm. um, we went to the hospital. And Fort Carson and most military installations do not actually have what is called a SANE nurse. So a SANE exam is a sex- sexual assault nurse, nurse examiner. Um, they have nurses who are actually very specifically trained to go through and be able to collect the forensic evidence because that's the big thing is you cannot lose the forensic evidence. So I, I didn't take a shower. I didn't brush my teeth. I didn't change my clothes. I did exactly what I was supposed to have done. Um, we got to the hospital and I had to wait eight hours to be seen because there were three girls ahead of me. So three other women, had gone through that same thing and there was only one sane nurse and one examination room. Wait, at the, in the military? And or or was, was it a, a regular hospital? It was a civilian hospital because okay. the the That's hospital right. in Fort Carson didn't have a sane nurse. So by the time I finally got seen... Um, How did you know that though? How did you know not to go to the military doctor and to go to the civilian doctor? They tell us that. So actually during that, that same week that it had happened, we had actually had um, our sexual assault awareness training. So the military likes to check a lot of boxes. Yeah. They go, if we force them to watch this video and we do this training, then we're not accountable for whatever happens. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately it just doesn't work like that. But we had actually just had our training that week. And I mean, they make it known, like, if this were to happen to you, you need to go to Memorial because like Fort Carson doesn't have one. So got it. Um, so I went and had the exam done. And for anyone who has never had a stain exam done, it is incredibly invasive. It is. I'm assuming it would have to be. I mean, I. I, I, I'm talking so invasive. There are cameras inches away from 
you know, your private parts taking photos and Q-tips and speculums and they cut your nails and they examine your entire, I mean, so you are completely stripped down a second time. You're degraded a second time. And I think most people do it in hopes that that evidence is what's going to get you justice. But it is mentally and emotionally exhausting. It is a hard thing to recover from. So after we got done with the exam, they then gave me um, a round of pills and shots. So I got the plan B. I got um, antibiotics. I got penicillin shot, I believe. Um, I don't know if they gave me a round of steroids and then, uh, because they gave me so many antibiotics, they, uh, gave me medicine for, in case it caused a yeast infection. So the combination of all that medicine on an empty stomach made me violently sick. And I went home and I took a shower and I laid on the shower floor until the water ran cold. And then I slept for what felt like forever, I guess. Um, I didn't report open. So in the military, you're given the option to report restricted or unrestricted. You can report restricted and restricted allows you to go get your SANE exam. It allows you to start counseling if you need it and kind of basically get the medical and like mental health help that you might need to help you get through it. But it does not open an investigation. If you report restricted, you can only tell like choice people. You can tell a SARC officer, which is a sexual sexual assault response coordinator. That's what the military has called them. Um, You can tell one of them that you want to report restricted. And you can tell a police officer, basically, that you want to report restricted. And I think maybe a chaplain. Those are your three options. Those are the only three people that you can tell if you want that report to stay restricted. You tell anyone else, and that case is going unrestricted. Unrestricted means now you are going to press charges, or the military is going to press charges, and there will be an investigation. This is the part that gets a lot of women. So the numbers are absolutely staggering for cases that aren't reported. They estimate it to believe to be about 70% of cases of rape and sexual assault go unreported in the military. So the fact that when you went in, is that, and you had, you know, the same nurse check everything, were they not obligated to report something whether you wanted to or not? Not, no, because I reported restricted. Um, so that, that examination, they save that, the evidence, the DNA and all of those things for, I believe is 10 years and it's different in each state. Colorado is 10 years, I believe. Don't quote me, but they have one of the longest statutes across the country. Um, Kansas, I think, is only six. So you can report later. And that's another thing that a lot of people will look at it and go, well, why wouldn't you report right now? Why wouldn't you open up the case? And this, the rest of my story will show you exactly why people don't. Um, but people, people aren't ready. Uh, 
the military, but even just society in general, has a wonderful way of making the the abuser the victim, mm-hmm. and the victim becomes the abuser somehow. Right. I'm I'm not exactly sure how people manage to turn that around, but it's exactly what happens in rape cases. Well, and it's um, you know. No matter what, military, not, you know, rape in general, you see this time and time and time and time and time again where people don't report it. There are so many reasons why women don't report it. Being scared, worried that you won't be believed, the repercussions, the... Losing your family, losing, losing respect, your family. Like, respect from people because they think you might be lying. I mean, there's so much stuff. Right. So so when when it's so easy for someone who it hasn't happened to say, well, why didn't you report it? Why didn't you you know, it's so easy for someone to do that when it hasn't happened to them. That's that's the trouble here is that people don't have empathy. You know, it's your you they, they just they just would never understand it. You know, that's that's the There's- issue. There's a lot of shame that comes with it, too. So for me, I personally dealt with a lot of my mental health degraded super fast. And my biggest thing was I was stuck inside of this body. I wanted nothing more than to just shed my skin and start over. Um, I cut my hair. I got colored contacts. I lost about 20 pounds physically on purpose. Like I was trying, I got a new tattoo. Um, I did whatever it could to try to change my body in a way that like, it wasn't that body I wanted Mm -hmm. out of that body. And I think there's an education piece that, that we're missing that we're not, you know, I, I'm going to direct this towards our daughters because you know, having a daughter now, I feel like I'm, I'm going to be obligated once she gets to that age to let her know. And I mean, even age appropriately as she's growing up to teach her that that's her body. And if somebody violates that, that is not her cross to carry. That's not Mm -hmm. her burden. That is somebody else did wrong. Somebody else messed up and people were maybe going to point the finger. People were going to try to make it her fault. People would, try to turn the situation around saying, you know, she should have done X, Y, and Z. But at the end of the day, that's not, that's not a victim's cross to carry. And it, it takes a lot of work to get to that point because you go back yourself and go, Oh my God, like, why did I, why did I let this guy stay at my house? Why would I offer that? Why didn't I Mm -hmm. kick him out of the house? Why can't I remember? Like, I want to be able to remember so that I can tell people what happened and I can't remember it. So there's a a whole lot that goes into it that you have to put in a lot of work in counseling and therapy to be able to get through a lot of those feelings. But that's part of why people don't report, too, because there's kind of the feeling that if you just don't say it out loud, maybe it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in all honesty, if you could snap your finger and make it go away, that would be a blessing. Um, So it was Easter Sunday because it happened April 22nd, uh, which was it would have been a Friday morning. Our dining in was Thursday. It happened on Friday. Easter Sunday, he called me 
and he told me that he knew that I enjoyed it because I was wet. Uh. And I hung up the phone and I lost my shit and I immediately called the county sheriff and I went unrestricted. I opened my case wide up. And I don't think I 100, I mean, I knew what I was facing. I knew how the system worked. I knew what the unit was most likely going to do. But I think I, I was naive in a manner that I really thought the system the system would work. The system would come back around to justice. I had done what I was supposed to do. I got all the evidence. I knew, you know, what was found in the exam. The system was going to work. Right. So I was going to have to go through you, hell, but the system was going to work. So he called you just to back up a little bit. He called you and you, did you know it was him calling and you answer and you have a conversation or, and, and did you say what happened or what, what was the conversation with him? So initially, besides the I terrible had, thing he said. So initially, I had texted him and I asked him. Um, I said, "You had sex with me, didn't you?" And he's he actually responded that he was going to ask me the same thing. He said he had never drank that much. He was really embarrassed. He was very confused. He had no idea what happened. That's what the text said. That's what all the texts say. Um, and I still have all those texts actually. And so my response to that was, fuck you. Right. And he said something else. And I responded again, fuck you. And then he called. Um, and I did answer the phone. And I let him know that I was reporting. Um, I don't remember the exact words in the conversation. But I was like, you're, you're real fucked. Like, I plan to have this investigated. I'm going to report this unrestricted. I had a scene exam done. There is evidence. There is DNA. Um, and that in that moment, I felt somewhat powerful. And in the next two seconds, he took it away by telling me that he thought that I enjoyed it. And in that moment, all I could think was, you just said you had no idea what happened. All right. the text messages say that you don't remember anything. So... Clearly, you remember more than what you're letting on. So, I have. Did they the test your blood for drugs um, to see if you they, were drugged? So they did test blood and they did test urine, and both of those came back negative. Um, and the the nurse had mentioned that she believed that I probably had to have been drugged to have slept through what had caused the tearing. Mm -hmm. Um. But because I waited so long to be seen, there was no evidence of it. Um, so he will tell you, as he has so wonderfully proclaimed on several posts recently, um, that no drug exists that could leave your system that fast. And that is actually not true. GHB is a date rape drug that has been around since the 90s. Mm -hmm. And in 8 to 10 hours, it's gone. Mm-hmm. So it, it, there are definitely drugs out there that can leave your system that fast. That's, that's why they're used for what they're used for. Right. It leaves very little evidence. So. And whether there was GHB or not, still, it doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, that it's still wrong. I mean, that's the heat. I mean, you know. Well, I think uh, the date rape drug thing is. It is important to mention because now if I go to the bar, if I set that drink down even once, 
Absolutely. Don't drink it. We're not yeah. picking it up. And I even walk around, like, I won't even walk around. If I go to the bar um, and I'm having a beer, I usually get, like, a long neck so I can stick my thumb in it. So that if I'm just walking around and I happen to turn the other way while I'm holding my beer bottle, somebody can't drop something in there. So mm-hmm. um, I Absolutely. don't. Mixed drinks are, you know. I don't take drinks from strangers. Like I've, I've absolutely know what you're saying. I mean, you know, the older you get, the more you're like, people are so capable of anything. And, and even if they're not necessarily trying to get with you, I think, I think people weirdly think it's funny. Right. Um, you know, that they would do that. Um, and, and so, you know, it, I literally, if I can't watch my drink being poured, you know, yeah. that's absolutely, you know. I think that's another thing, though, that it goes back to the, like, those are the things we have to teach our daughters. And exactly. It's sad that we live in a society where those are the things that we have to teach our daughters, but like their best defense is going to be all the knowledge. Yes. So I would much rather tell somebody my story today and potentially save a girl from ever having to go through this because she had the wherewithal and she wasn't so naive and she wasn't so trusting and people could call her paranoid all they want, but she didn't get raped. So I feel like that's a trade-off and a big old win. Yeah. Um, so when we went unrestricted, I reported to the county sheriff and military bases have the option to take over those cases. So mm. it did not happen on a military installation. It happened inside my home. My home was in El Paso County, but my case was turned over to be handled by the military. So CID, which is the criminal investigative division of the military started the investigation. Um, I had given a statement. Darby, who was my battle buddy that night, gave a statement. Apparently my female commander gave a statement. My female first sergeant gave a statement. So things I did not know until recently because I have recently um, acquired a copy of my investigative report. Do you lawyer up for something like this in the military or do they give you a lawyer or how does that work? So in the military, the victim is assigned legal counsel Mm. from Jack. You do not get a choice who that person is. If you, however, are the defendant, you do have the option of hiring civilian counsel. But why don't you get a choice? I don't get it. I wish I knew the answer to that question. Uh, It seems like a very unlevel playing field. Yeah. But it and it's one that I raised hell about then, too. I didn't understand it. Like, so you're telling me that he can go hire the guy who got OJ off, but I have to take captain i've been in the army for four years right cool i'd rather not like i wanted a shark like right i'll pay all the money give me a shark give me the best chance at winning um but that was not an option and to my knowledge it is still not an option um hopefully if you know all of this reaches reaches the hill that'll be a thing that we can change but um so And I I was given an attorney, um, and I do believe my attorney did the best that he could at the time. I don't think that he, like, slept off on the case. I 
I don't know how much experience he had had. He seemed like he very much knew what he was doing. He seemed very hopeful actually going into the case because of how everything had been reported and the SANE exam and all of that. I do think that that was, I mean, you, you could have waited a couple days too. The fact that you went right away was so important. So, so important, no matter how scared or whatever you were feeling at the time or ashamed or whatever was going through your head. It, it's just, it, it's so important now that you, I mean, just think if you wouldn't have, you yeah. know, I mean, two days later could have meant, and obviously you it still didn't, you still didn't get the ending that needed to happen, but even more so, I mean, you may not even have been able to take it to anywhere. So, I mean, I just think it's that's important for everybody to know, too, is immediately going to get checked out. Absolutely. And that's that is the best advice. So, like, if and it is scary, I don't I don't want to paint a picture that, like, it's a comforting scenario. It is not. It is you're in a hospital on a a table laying on a drape so that you don't lose any sort of evidence whatsoever. So if you think that you have been raped or assaulted, you need to go directly to the hospital. Do not change your clothes. Do not wash your hands. Do not brush your teeth. If you can help it, do not go to the bathroom. Um, Because every, everything, like if you, you know, you go to the bathroom and you wipe, you're losing evidence. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, Mm -hmm. If you change your clothes, your cha- your clothes could have evidence on them. Yeah. Um, brushing your hair even. Don't, don't brush your hair. Don't clip your fingernails. Don't brush your teeth. All like they're going to swab every part of your body looking for evidence. They're going to clip hair. They're going to clip fingernails. They're going to look for, you know, signs of evidence inside your clothing. And like I said, when you do the exam, you're literally on a drape so that anything that could fall off Um, off of your body will Mm -hmm. still be yeah will still be part of that kit so it is 100% like that is your best chance if you decide that you want to prosecute that is your what a crazy thing to have to think about right after something like that happens like do I want to prosecute I have to go I have to make sure well and that's the thing is you don't necessarily have to you don't and that right that's true military or civilian you don't have to prosecute right away but just but get that the evidence, evidence if you, you want chance. to. Yeah. If you decide, you know, a week or even like I said, each each state has their own statutes for how they handle it, however many years they might have. But that evidence is only going to last for so long. And if you do think that there's a possibility that you had been drugged, um, that it, it's only going to stay in your body for so long. Mm-hmm, You're right. only going to be able to collect that for so long. So when... You know, when people came back, Hannah, you were asking me earlier about how much did you have to drink. So when my blood test came back, there was zero alcohol. Mm. So for everybody who said she was this drunk and she had too much to drink, there wasn't alcohol in my system either. And it wasn't 0.02. It was 0.00. There was no alcohol in my system. Right. So And normally you would have probably had some, especially a blood test. Mm -hmm. Um and not, you know, obviously if you, um, are blowing in a blower or something like that for, you know, um, a DUI or whatever, 
that can change. But blood tests are going to be even more, um, they're going to, yeah, more comprehensive and more tracing of it longer than, than something, you know, just coming out of your breath. So, yeah. Which when my blood came back and they said, you don't have any alcohol in your system. I was like, well, yeah, I didn't drink that much. And I drank over, I mean, I drank with supper and knowing, you know, how my body metabolized it and my normal tolerance and the amount of time it had been. And I was like, yeah, I wasn't really worried that you were going to find alcohol in my system. It was crazy to me that that was the first thing people said was, well, you were drinking. And I was like, there was no alcohol. <laughs> I don't even understand how that becomes an argument anymore when you literally have a blood test sitting there that tells you that I wasn't drunk. So it was the weirdest thing. Like but I said, even if you are drinking me hope, but it kind of gave me false hope because all I could think was the only logical reason here is one, either my, my mind has processed this in a way that is pretty common for sexual assault and rape victims is disassociation mm -hmm. or I was drugged. Like there's not a lot of options left, Right. but I was wrong. Apparently there is the option that I was making it all up and it was a big lie. <laughs> I just, I didn't take into consideration that one enough. Um, so when you went, you port, you reported it unrestricted. So that, that kind of opens the doors to an investigation, which the military takes over. So the military has taken over your investigation and a bunch of people in your military circle have given a statement. So what happens next? Um, well, so actually he beat me to the punch, um, because I had told him that I was reporting. He walked into mm -hmm. the first sergeant's office on Monday morning and he said, Stone Rock and I had sex. Yikes. He said, I told, I've already told my wife. Um, and I, all of that is inside of her statement. So he made it sound like it was very consensual and he was this poor apologetic person person who just made a bad choice and his marriage was going to be affected and his career was going to be affected and they didn't know who the person was that had reported restricted the chain of command at that point had been made aware that there was a restricted report made but because it was restricted at that time they got zero information so they didn't know if we were the same person they didn't know if they just hadn't heard stone rock side of the story yet they didn't know if stone rock was actually you know, the victim of the sexual assault, they had no clue. Um, and then it was two days later by the time it made it back to my unit that it was me that had reported restricted and now was going unrestricted. So when you go unrestricted, um, the Army has a sexual assault policy. The policy very clearly states that no victim shall be treated with anything less than dignity. No victim shall receive any form of punishment for being a whistleblower. The victim is not to be moved from their current unit. The victim is not to be um, undignified, shamed, hazed, bullied in any way. Um, the victim is authorized to get mental health counseling. Um I mean, the big part of that is the victim is supposed to be treated with dignity. That's the mm -hmm. big, the big part of it. They do um, what is called a do not contact order. That is the military's version of a protection order. Basically, if you're a soldier in the army and they look at you and go, you are ordered to, now you're under an order. You break the order, you're, you know, you're doing something basically illegal in the eyes of the army. They can punish you for that. So they think that a, a do not contact order will be enough. Initially, a do not 
do not contact order was placed on me. Not so you him. couldn't contact him? Yes. And I was told that it was so that I could not harass him. Mm. And I said, okay. And he was gone, I guess. He was at a leadership training. I'm not 100% certain. But um, because he was gone, they did not feel like he needed an order placed on him. So they waited until he got back. And then they gave him the do not contact order. He violated the do not contact order three times. The do not contact order stated, like, you cannot talk to, look at, intimidate, harass, be within 90 feet of each other, blah, blah, blah. Um, he violated it multiple times, one of which sent me into a full anxiety attack. And I went and notified the chain of command. That was the last time that it had happened. And the chain of command said, well, you shouldn't have been outside smoking. Gotcha. Okay. So I went and got a civilian protection order, um, which is also a miserable process. So I had to go to El Paso County, uh, the courthouse, and filed a motion for a civilian protection order, which is usually temporarily granted, and then there's a hearing within a few days. What I did not know about the hearing is the hearing is like a mini trial. Mm -hmm. What I was told was, you're going to sit in front of a judge, you're going to tell them why you think you need this, he's going to stand there and say why he thinks he doesn't need this, and the judge will make a decision. What actually happens is that person can put you on the stand and question you. By the wow. same token, you can put him on the stand and ask him questions. So, I put him so you're on the basically stand like and, trying each other. Yeah, pretty much. So Weird. I and I didn't know that until I got there. Um, so I put him on the stand and I asked him one simple question. Were you given a military do not contact order? Yes or no? Yes. Have you violated it? Yes. Done. Like I couldn't look at this individual. I did not want to be in the same room as him. I was shaking. I was crying. He put me on the stand for 45 minutes. And proceeded to ask me all kinds of shit that was irrelevant. Like, which door did I typically walk in to the hospital when I went in in the mornings? And what department did I work in? And what side of the hospital is that located on? And basically just trying to state that he didn't need a do not protection order. My but he female, said he violated it. Oh, yeah. He, he openly admitted in front of the judge that he had violated it. That he had walked right past me. Um, and that he had seen me. And he knew that I was standing there. But that he had walked right past it. And what he told our chain of command was is that he didn't see me. He didn't know that was me. And so if I had a problem with it, then I should have left. So he, uh, he had said all that in front of the judge. And then the judge finally just stopped the whole thing. And she was like, all right. So I have no idea what chain of command you are under. But it sounds like a shit show. And I'm going to go ahead and grant this protection order because clearly something has happened. Like, she can't look at you. She's, you know, crying on the stand. This is ridiculous. I don't even have any idea why you think the questions you're asking are relevant. She granted me a permanent protection order that I have to this day. So, like, if I get pulled over by a cop and there's somebody else in the car, they ask for every ID of the people in the car to make sure that it's not him. Mm. So, and she had made it for 300 yards, so three football fields. Well, we worked in a hospital together. Not together, but he worked, you know, on mother-baby ward, and I worked downstairs in radiology. Oh, the mother-baby ward. How great. 
oh, I wanted to hang a banner inside that hospital that was like a nurse. Jesus. We asked for another one. Um, but we can't, we can't ruin rapists' futures. That's right. Can't, can't ruin their future. So, what I didn't know also until we got to that hearing was my female company commander wrote him a letter to take to the the hearing for the protection order, which stated that while she could appreciate what Staff Sergeant Stone Rock had been through, she did not believe that Staff Sergeant Burns was a threat. Mm. This is so your this, commanding officer. It was my command, a female at that. You, and I was you guys like, have different commanding officers. No, we have the same commanding officer. Oh. So she took a side. <laughs> like, if there was no clear evidence that, like, they did not believe me, that was That's a pretty it. clear sign that they did not believe me. So um, I left and I, you know, took the piece of paper that they gave me and it stated all the parameters like he's not allowed to even contact me third party. So he can't even call you to tell you to call me. Mm-hmm. Um, so but but yet he has he's messaged on Facebook, hasn't he? He has. So that case is currently sitting in the county attorney's office. And I guess we will see what happened. Um, it was investigated in Florida initially. The county sheriff here decided that he wanted to take lead on the case. I have not heard. I hadn't heard anything until I called about five times yesterday and was raising hell. Um, and from my understanding, because I asked if they were going to pull IP addresses to try to match up, you know, on Facebook. And he said, well, we're just going to turn it over to the county attorney and see what she wants to do. So. As of right now, it's sitting on a county attorney's desk. When I called today, she hadn't made it to my case yet. So um, what is supposed to happen? He should be arrested and he should be extradited to apparently Kansas. So I guess they'd bring him here and he'd sit in the courthouse. And I've had people say, you don't want that. Yes, I do. I 100% do because I want victims to see that there is hope that even if their trial doesn't go that way, that they're there is hope for the system to get better and that those people will help be held accountable. Well, let's like, go back to that. Cause so there was an investigation and then did it drop? Did you decide not to go forward at some point or like where did the, what charges were pressed and then what was done yeah, or not um, done? Yeah. So the investigation lasted, well, first they had to test the, the uh, evidence kit the forensic kit was at Quantico for six months because they were so backed up. So it took six months back to get the evidence. Once we got the evidence back, uh, my attorney contacted me and said, we got the evidence back. There is enough DNA. There is plenty of evidence. We're, we're going to Article 32. Article 32 is the military's version of a pretrial hearing. So it is what you do. It's that first step to find probable cause. To go into any trial, you have to have probable cause. So in the military's version of this, your command picks an officer from within your chain of command, someone who is supposed to be non-biased. If you know anything about the military, there's a bias. Anyone mm -hmm. from inside your unit has already heard this story, already has picked a side somehow they already know sort of what's going on whether they know both sides or one side or whatever but there will be a bias um 
it is not anyone who is trained in legal proceedings. These aren't lawyers. These aren't judges. Mine happened to be a medical supply officer. So he sat and basically kind of acted as like the judge. They call him an investigating officer, but he's essentially kind of the judge. He's the person determining whether or not there is probable cause. Um, so we did pre-trial examinations where basically my attorneys would sit me down and ask me the questions that they think the defense attorneys are going to ask me. Um, we go over the details of the case and it was so brutal that I wanted to quit. When we did the pre-trial prep, I think it lasted for it was two to three hours and I I cried. I wanted to stop. I wanted their to... lawyers are trying to get they're trying to prepare you for how brutal their lawyers are gonna be and they're trying to discredit you. So they're trying to make you out to be a really bad a slutty woman or um yeah. A dr- uh, an alcoholic or a bad person or that's and that's what you went through with your lawyers to prep you for it right yeah and I wanted to quit and I at one point I just looked at him and I was like I'm done drop the charges I can't do it I don't want to mm-hmm. and my attorney threw a file down on the desk in front of me and he said you can't quit because you're not the first one he's done this to mm. so there was there was charges against him that never went through There was a soldier in Korea and her file, her story was damn near exactly the same as mine. They believed she'd been drugged. She didn't get tested in time. There was evidence. There was DNA, but there was no drug. There was no alcohol. It was her story versus his story, essentially. And she couldn't do it. So she dropped the charges and that's where it ended. So the only, um, this file, and I didn't know about this file until our hearing was in October. So it would have been late September, early October that I found out about it. Mm-hmm. So all of that time, I was even thinking I was fighting this war on my own. And in reality, there was another woman out there who knew exactly what I was going through. And once I found that out, I was just like, you could have prevented me from having to go through this if you would have you know, hung in there and kept fighting. So I did. So I hung in there and I kept fighting. But that's you. That's you push. I don't know. I feel like you're putting pressure on her when it's her story and her when you say that. And I mean, all I could think was if he did this to her and he did this to me. There's probably more. He's probably or he's going to do it again. I mean, especially the more you get away with it, you know, the more likely you are to just keep trying your luck. Right. So. Right. So I kept going. Um, and kind of in the hopes that, I mean, I didn't know the girl, the file had, had her name redacted. So I, to this day, I don't know her. Right. There's a, there's a piece in me that really hopes that she sees the press conference or that she hears this podcast or that she sees my Facebook post and she feels like she got some sort of a voice. Okay. Yeah. Because when she stopped, that's, she lost, she lost her voice. Like Mm -hmm. that was her kind of putting her voice on the shelf and being like, I can't fight this fight. So I, there's a small piece of me that really hopes that she sees this at some point in time and knows that you're fighting for her. Yeah. So I kept going and we went into the hearing and I was basically made out to be a drug addict. Um, Mm. I believe they told me I, I abused prescription drugs at one point in time. Um, they were basing that off of the fact that I 
I had said when I woke up, I didn't feel drunk. I felt like I was drugged. And the so only you knew thing that I actually like. equated that to was, so after I had been assaulted, I started counseling and they had prescribed me clonopin and Ambien because I wasn't sleeping. And I had taken the two too close together one night and I was trying to go from my couch to my bedroom. And I was like, this is what that felt Seems like. familiar. Yeah. And so I had, I had told the investigator, like, I think that I was drugged at that point. Like, that is what it felt like. Well, they came back and used that against me and said, well, you know, you're abusing these drugs. And I was like, I was, was never given Even if those you've drugs never used a drug after. in your life, when, when your body feels like it doesn't normally feel, that yeah. is a common thing to say. Like, I feel like I was drugged. Whether you have taken drugs or not, it it is still something that someone who hasn't taken drugs would still possibly say, you know, well, it's, it's and you a, know when your body feels off. So how else right. do you describe it? And it's hard yeah. to describe some of that stuff. Like, what are you supposed to like? Right. I felt dizzy and tired and I, I not clear minded and, but not drunk. I did not right. feel drunk. Right. And that's, it's a hard it's a hard description to make, I guess, while, while still being able to get your point across. Um, right. So then they, you know, they called me a whore and I probably just cheated on my husband because he was deployed and I just didn't want to get caught. So I cried rape and so that everybody would feel bad for me. Um, I had gotten a DWAI prior to this and when they did my NCO ER, which is my evaluation report, um, they made me, they checked on the box, no for integrity. So there's, you know, core army values and integrity is a big one. And by definition of integrity, it's doing the right thing when no one is looking. And they said, well, you drink and drive, so you have no integrity. And I said, that's, that's not what that means. I don't want to check that box. And I tried to fight it, actually. And I was like, no, you're going to screw me later. Like, I give me the shitty NCOER for getting the DWAI. Like it was irresponsible. I shouldn't have done it. I should have made better choices, but that's not a lack of integrity. I'm not a liar. And it did screw me because they used it against me in my trial. And so basically what it did was allow my rapist to get, to get away with rape. And so they found him not guilty. So what so, about his integrity? Was was the previous case that was brought up against him not brought up? It was never mentioned in the trial. They not couldn't once. mention it though, right? Because of it was not restricted or something? No, hers was hers was reported unrestricted. She just dropped the charges. So now that I actually have a case file. So I didn't know any of this at the time. And I didn't know any of this until well, they were honest about two weeks ago. I have a lot more information now on my case than I did then. So speaking, speaking as staff sergeant Stone Rock, who didn't know anything then, I sat right. on the stand. I was called a liar. I was called an adulteress. I was called a whore. Um, I was a drug addict. I was an alcoholic. I had no integrity. I was a shitty NCO. I was basically making all this up so that, you know, I could get attention and not get in trouble for cheating on my husband. And after... It was a couple hours that I was on the stand. They finally let me off the stand. And what came back was that the presiding officer, the investigating officer who sat over the hearing, 
did find that there was probable cause, but he did not believe there to be probable cause beyond a reasonable doubt. So this is where the attorneys came to me and said, we have options at this point. Mind you, at this point, my marriage was falling apart. I was married at the time. He had been deployed when the whole thing happened. He did not handle it well at all when he found out. Um, he came home from that deployment and volunteered to leave literally two days later again because he couldn't, he didn't know how to handle it, which is. He didn't know how to handle that you had been violated or that, I mean, I guess, is he looking at it as now my wife is tarnished or I guess I don't want you to have to speak for him. And I don't 100% know. I mean, he didn't know how to be there to support me emotionally. Mm-hmm. He realized how bad it wasn't until he got home and saw me that he realized how bad I actually was, like how bad my mental health was and where right. I was at emotionally. Um, I, he just, I'm not 100% sure. He has since apologized. Um, he's come back and said that was actually my lowest point as a man was making you deal with that all by yourself. Um, and it was actually me that asked for the divorce, not my husband, because when he, when he left, I resented him. Mm -hmm. Like it was, I had stood behind, I had stayed behind for every deployment, every military school, every training. I was, you know, the wife that baked all the cookies and made the desserts and had the guys over for barbecues. And I hated him for it because I was like, this is the one time that I've ever asked to come before the army and I Mm -hmm. needed you and you left me. So I actually asked for the divorce and it, but it was because I like, I checked out and I pushed everyone away. Everybody Mm -hmm. that I thought you could hurt me more than what I was already hurting. I pushed you away before you could hurt me more because I couldn't take any more emotional pain. So So when the attorneys came back, they said, we do have probable cause. Here's your options. We can go to trial. We can go to a court martial. You're going to sit in front of a jury of your peers. However, the investigating officer does not believe this was beyond a reasonable doubt. And so we are worried that we are going to put you through this for another six to 12 months, however much longer the investigation lasts. And they're going to come back and find it to be not beyond a reasonable doubt. And he essentially gets acquitted. And this is still court, military court. This isn't civilian. Okay. Yeah. And so I said, and actually my, my husband, because we were still married at the time, was sitting in the office with me. And he said, what's the other option? And they said, well, basically it's a plea deal. He would kind of plead guilty to adultery. How do you plead guilty to adultery? That's not a thing. So my husband looked at him and said, so if you're going to charge him with adultery, then you essentially, you'd have to charge her with adultery. Like, but how is that a charge? It's not a charge. It's a charge in the military. In the military. Oh, I'm like, that's not illegal. It's called non-judicial punishment in the military. So by military standards of our integrity and all our army values, you are not allowed to cheat on your spouse. That's right. Good. So they probably use that for future, like becoming officers, becoming, you know, those are the things that go on your record for future awards and things that would keep you from getting that stuff. So speaking of records, the military has a wonderful way of making your record clean again. Um, so I ended up taking 
the plea deal. I could not, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do six more months of investigating. I couldn't do, there was a point in time because they actually moved me out of the hospital so that he could keep working because I had the restraining order. Like they looked at me and said, well, how is he supposed to go to work? Not my problem. I don't care. I don't care if he ever works again. I don't, I don't give a shit. That sounds like your responsibility as a commander to figure out that problem and make Mm -hmm. something happen. So their, their solution was to move me to an off post clinic. But isn't that part of the values where you can't move the victim? Yeah, it sure is part of the policy, but we didn't but you do went that. But you went out and got a civilian restraining order, so then that kind of made it null and void, and they're like, well. It shouldn't have. <laughs> okay. I'm wondering if that was their reasoning. Uh, I think for them, it was easier to move me. Right. He was He was very well liked. He had a lot of people in his corner, and I was just the person that was making waves. I was the person that was loud about it. So it was easier to send me off post. So there was a period of time where I legit wasn't even going to work. And mm-hmm. they had no idea. There was zero accountability of me for probably close to 90 days. They had no idea that I wasn't going to work. That's odd for the military, though, because don't they have tabs on you all the time? Well, they're supposed to. <laughs> uh, out of sight, out of mind, though. So, mm. um, so and at at that point, I had asked to be transferred unit. Co- I asked to, I asked to be deployed. I asked to send me to the line unit. I asked to go to the cache. I asked to go anywhere but inside that hospital. because What's I, the line unit and what's the cache? So the cache is a combat, combat support hospital, which is a deploying unit, which is what I did with my initial unit. A line unit would have been being attached to like an infantry brigade or battalion where I would have been part of a level two, um, which is not a full hospital, but it has medical capabilities above that of just a medic, which is, that's exactly my initial unit. My very first unit out of the military was a line unit level two. Um, they told me that I couldn't go (sighs) until everything was done and over with. So I had to wait until all of that was resolved. And then I did finally end up getting to transfer units, but Um, it was just, it was miserable. It was absolutely like I lost every friend I had inside that hospital. I take that back. I had, I had Darby still and I had Ramirez and both to this day are, I keep in touch with, um, they keep in touch with me. In fact, Ramirez has checked in on me since I did this whole post, um, to make sure that my mental health is okay and that I'm not getting, dragged back down which I think a lot of my friends and family are kind of like my husband now has expressed that he's you know he's worried as how how this is gonna affect me if it's gonna you know kind of take over if it's gonna set back in and be traumatic a second time um so what motivated you to write the post uh Vanessa Gillen so She's all over the news, but it does not surprise me that there's still a lot of people who haven't heard about it. So Vanessa Gillen is a soldier who was stationed down in Fort Hood. She had been missing since, I believe it was March, March or April. And they just found her body about three weeks ago. Um, And she was actually brutally murdered and dismembered 
and she had made it known that she was going to file against, um, I believe it was an NCO in her unit for sexual harassment. And then two days later was gone. And I believe, I don't remember if Fort Hood declared her AWOL. But, I mean, they had cleared out her barracks room before they found her body. And the story Mm. of how they found her body is absolutely just disgusting. So, when they finally found her body, they went to question the one soldier that they thought it was. And he killed himself on the spot in front of police, um, shot himself in the head. They did, however, manage to arrest his girlfriend who helped him do all of this. So, it... And the case itself is just absolutely nuts. Uh, She was beaten to death with a hammer inside of the arms room, according to the girlfriend's account of it. Um, So badly so that her teeth were not even, they couldn't use her teeth to identify her. They had to use hair strands. Um, He then stuck her in a tough box, which is like an extra tough Tupperware box, like a big one. Wheeled her out to his car, took her out to Belton State Park, dismembered her body um with a hatchet and then the pieces that he couldn't get done with a hatchet he used a machete and then they tried to light those pieces on fire and when those pieces didn't burn they buried them and then they went back two days later unburied those pieces dipped them in concrete and reburied them and he suppose did this because he had assaulted her and she was going to press charges and then him and his girlfriend did this to her so far, that's the story. Fort Hood is saying that they have no um, no report of, of sexual harassment or sexual assault. Her mother is the one who has come forward and said she was going to report this. I believe that the that her disappearance is tied to this. And her family actually posted a reward for information leading to the finding of her. So her family was doing more to find her than the military was. Um, and this is what your motivator was to come out with your story that so you're just. Was, yeah. And I wasn't the first, there was a lot of, of women coming forward. So at that time, and I haven't checked the hashtag lately, but that was, it was about three days after the whole thing. There were 5,000 hits on Instagram under the hashtag. I am Vanessa Gillen. And it's service members who have just come forward. Like I was sexually harassed. I was sexually assaulted. Um, it was my commanding officer, it was my NCO, or it was, you know, a guy in a different unit, or, and now, not being in the military, like, they don't own me anymore, you right. can't, you can't write an NCOER and make my life hell, right. I own, you know, I own my own business, and I'm my own boss, and in all honesty, if one of my clients, I guess, were to hear about this whole thing and be like, oh, oh, my God, I can never hire more power to you. You are not my client. <laughs> right. Um, but I do think that it, the stories need to be told and the attention needs to be brought to it so that change can happen because the military does a really good job of sweeping it under the rug. So the end state of what happened in my case is they did find him guilty of adultery. That much they knew was true. They knew that he had sex. Um, but that also goes against you, too, though. So I don't did see not. that. So oh. I was not charged with adultery. To charge me with adultery, you would have had to charge me with a false report. 
which would have meant that I lied about it and that it was consensual sex. And that was a very, that was a super hard thing for my husband at the time to understand. He didn't so they understand admitted, that So basically it's because they didn't charge you, that shows right there. That, that it was non-consensual. That it was not consensual. Yeah. So what happens in those kind of cases? So adultery being a non-judicial punishment, he got what is called a letter of reprimand. And they have they have lots of different. So you can do Article 15, um, which people get for like being late for formation. You can get a letter of reprimand, which is more serious, but you have two options. It can go in your open file or it can go in your local file. Your local file stays at that unit and that unit only. So that is what they recommended happened to him, is that it stayed in his local file. So as soon as he left the hospital, it was gone. There was no longer any trace of, of anything. So he basically got to move on like nothing ever happened, which being a victim is incredibly hard to deal with because we don't get that. Like, you don't right. get to just move on. and right. It's that part sucks and it's super unfair. Um, so there is on one of your posts, um, just to go along with his record and everything, what is that someone had posted a record that he has from somewhere of like battery or assault. Is that him? Is that, is that so, a felony? And was he actually convicted or was it just a charge brought against him? So that is from his ex-wife that he was married to. Um, he was married to this woman when he raped me. And it was, I think it was in 2016 or 17, he pled guilty to domestic violence. Um, he also was found guilty of child abuse. He lost full and complete custody. He has no visitation, does not support. He has a son. Um, and... So, I mean, normal people, which floors me that this guy is involved in politics and that he's helping people get elected right so now. So that's, let's go to that. <laughs> let's yeah. go to that. Because that's also, I'm glad that you were telling your story and you got to do this press conference, but that's also a little. Um, Part of why I did it. Yeah, like the motivation. I'm glad you got out there and I'm glad you told your story, but the motivation and the whole press conference for the person that did it, it felt like he had, he didn't really have your best intention in mind. He just really wanted to get his, his Kennedy like catapulted where yeah. your story helped that. So it was kind of like twofold for me. And me I completely well. agree with that. Um, I also know that, if people are going to listen, it's going to be right now. Right. It's going to be an election agree. year. Yes. So yeah. I, it I, just sucks that that has to be why people listen. That's all I'm saying. It's like, I get it, but that blows. It so, really does. But part of the reason that I agreed to do it, and I understand that he somewhat exploited my story for his gain. Okay. That's, that's not above me. I get that. I'm sure but you did, at but the same I just time, want to call it out. When I have a lawmaker willing to listen. Yep. True. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like you, I can't walk away from that. Like no, that no, because as much either. as yeah. as much as being a soldier, like and especially you know young NCOs or senior NCOs, we always we go in there and we think we can make a difference. Like we can right. make change in this army, and that's exactly what they tell you. You have to move up the ranks so that you can make it better for the soldiers behind you. You can create change. That is bullshit. You cannot create change inside the military. We don't have enough power or rank. We are not generals. Generals create change. 
Officers who want gold stars create change. The best we can do as an NCO is support our soldiers, hopefully teach them to lead, you know, better than us so that that much they do get, so that they learn empathy, so they understand how to deal with these these hard scenarios that are going to come up. Um, and treat, train, you know, train the soldiers to do their job so that when they go overseas, they have the best chance of survival. Um, but that is about as far as creating change inside the military as, as you have power. Now, um, I'm actually, I just got off the phone this morning with one of my old E7s who she became a sergeant major and she knows people on the Hill and they want to create change. And it's a lot of brainstorming going on. Like, how do we do that? How do we change the system? What needs to be brought to light? How, how loud do we need to get and, you know, what kind of campaign can we start to get the attention of it? Because so like we have we have the 22 push up a day challenge and that is devoted to, you know. It's not necessarily, I guess, widely known, but it's more known than what happens as far as sexual assault and sexual harassment in the military. But 22 veterans on average a day take their life. Mm. We have a big mental health issue for veterans right. who aren't getting care, veterans who have PTSD and don't know how to cope. Like we lost one out of my old unit ourselves. Like we lost Ebling. Ebling lost that fight. And so kind of we're trying to come up with an idea for a campaign that will, you know, put this in people's faces so that people do hear more about it and and it becomes more of a topic of conversation. This has been taken to the Hill twice since my rape case. It happened in 2011, and I think it happened again in 2016. And still not a lot has changed. From my understanding at this point, now the victim can sit in on the trial. So when I went to trial, I was not allowed to sit in the courtroom. I didn't get to hear any of the testimony. Mm. Which is weird. Because yeah. I wasn't the one on trial, but the defendant could. He got to sit in and listen to everything that was said, every sworn statement, every piece of evidence that was submitted. He knew all of it. I got to go in to testify, and that was that was it. Um, I was actually never given a copy of the transcripts of my investigation. Um, so now, from my understanding, they are given a copy, although it is redacted. Um, and they can sit in and listen to the trial. But I think that there's a lot that we can do. Like, I have my own ideas um, that I think would be beneficial coming from the victim side standpoint of it. Like, they never called. So now that I have the full transcripts. So one, my rapist had a full unredacted copy of my SANE exam. Mm. Wow. A full unredacted copy. So full name, full birth date, all my prior medical information, um, all of the evidence that was found and collected, he had a full copy of that report from the hospital. So if you know anything about HIPAA, he shouldn't have that. Right. I don't know how exactly he has that. They're running audits on my medical records right now to find out if it was released by a hospital. Um, I don't know if the investigator gave it to him. I don't know if someone in my chain of command gave it to him. I don't know yet. So um, two... Um, I now know what the findings were from my case. So, Tamara, when you mentioned earlier, was it never mentioned about his prior charges? Mm -hmm. No, it was not. 
they also never called a sexual trauma counselor to testify. Um, so an expert on how a victim would act or respond. So a lot of people will say, well, you know, if you were raped, um, you, you would remember it, obviously. Well, that's not entirely true. So every rape victim is going to actually handle it a little bit differently. There's been lots of studies done now. Um, disassociation is actually a big thing where your mind essentially tries to protect itself from the trauma that is happening. And you literally just go blank and don't yeah. remember it. Um, that is unfortunately how you end up with PTSD because your body does not ever process that information from the logical and the emotional side back and forth until you just process it away as a memory. It just stops. Some victims will actually report that it was like being above themselves watching it happening. That was not what happened in my case. I just don't remember a lot of it. Um, so I think it would be very important to call a trauma counselor in, someone who could testify to that, someone who has experience and knowledge and, you know, a doctorate. That'd be, that'd be a win. Um, the things that were noted for why he did not believe it to be beyond a reasonable doubt. <laughs> I did not physically throw him out of my house. Mm. I did not call 911, so I didn't report it immediately. Um, when I text him initially, I asked, um, he quoted it, you had sex with me. So I didn't call it rape right off the bat. I wasn't wearing my wedding ring during the hearing that happened nine months later. Um, and they never noted the fact that he noted that I switched bedrooms with him but didn't note that during my testimony, I switched bedrooms with him to get away from him. Right. So I said no once. And then I went upstairs and I, I now, like I now know I went upstairs and I guess I passed back out. There are, there are details that I did mention during my SANE exam where I was in and out of what would appear to be consciousness, but I don't, to this day, I don't remember having vaginal sex. The only reason that I know that it happened is because it's in the report. So um, all of those things don't equal consensual sex. <laughs> right. And I, for the life of me, don't really understand why those things would even, I guess, necessarily matter in a trial. Like, why would it matter if I was married or not? Right. I could right. be single. Right. 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 Or maybe I was a giant whore. I could have been a giant slut. I could have slept with Doesn't everybody. Doesn't matter. But if I didn't agree to have sex with you, that still makes it rape. Right. right. And so now here we are also, there's a man out there who is, you know, on this political campaign um, uh, who, who, what I saw was claiming that he does not have any history of anything but there's clear there's a clear report online that was showed that he does so here i mean there is a history a pattern i mean that is now you know if someone you know reported his first rape um possible you know i'm, I'm not gonna alleged alleged first rape um the one that you have reported the the charges against his you know that his ex-wife filed that are public knowledge that that everyone saw there and then the other one that you discussed of 
the child abuse. So he, he actually stated, has more than that too, which is crazy. So, um, so whoever wrote that letter and shared a letter stating that he had no felonies against his record, um, when you when you literally, I think any of us could get online and see that that charge and battery. Almost almost all public records like that you can get on and yeah. see and see that. So, um, I I mean. So with this whole political thing that is going on, um, you know, this happens to be that he's down in Florida. He's on a campaign. Um, you reached out to the and, and I don't know who's running for what, because, I mean, we're we're in Kansas. So, um, I mean, basically, you know, he he's representing our government um, in the U.S. And I think that's what is scary to me is and, and you know that, that something needs to be done here is that people are getting away with this not even if he wasn't running for government but at the end of the day or or, or wasn't part of politics and, and all that that e- either way something should have happened but just the fact that even more so that he is you know working his way into the system working his yeah. way into the system so initially what what kind of sparked all of that? And initially I had I didn't have as much intention of this getting as big as it did. I, I had the intention of telling my story. I had the intention of giving other people hope that you know, even if that's what you were going through, there is life outside of that. Like you've got to push through that to get to whatever's on the other side. Um and to kind of be a voice to make that movement a little bit louder than it was. Um, so when I unblocked him, because I actually unblocked him for that post, because that was the first time since 2011 that I've said his name out loud or that anyone even knew. And for some reason, as the victim, I even felt guilty. Like, mm. that's his life, right? Like, you can't mess with his life. You can't harass someone like that. Bullshit. Fuck that. Didn't take me long to get over that, but that was my initial thought was Right. People are gonna think you're harassing him. I'm not harassing him. I'm just letting the rest of the world know who you are. And I think right. people deserve to know who who they're dealing with. Well, when I unblocked him, he had Bless a second you. profile. Bless you. Thank you. He had a second profile that came up and it said politician. <laughs> and uh, Tamara, I had the same reaction you did. What? No. No. No, you should not be a politician. You should not be in charge of making laws or decisions or even, honestly, in a position of power because you right. don't know how to appropriately wield that power. And I kind of started digging and looking to find out what kind of politician he was and what he was involved in and so what I had found was that he was actually the campaign manager of a woman who was running for state representative down in Florida and I reached out to her first actually um and because I I then one of the next things I found was that there was a conversation happening about how he had excuse me all these felony charges in all these different states So I read the article that was posted and it had said that he had been charged with felonies in four different states. And as I read the articles and the locations, I was like, ah, you guys missed Colorado. (laughs) So that would be five. 
And I mean, the reality of it is normal law-abiding citizens don't have this, like even allegations. Normal, normal non-rapists don't have multiple allegations of rape, let alone one. They don't have multiple charges of domestic violence and child abuse and gun charges and drug charges and property damage charges of to the felony degree like it's it's not a normal right it's a pattern it's it's a it's a pattern so I reached out to her and I told her that her campaign manager had raped me when I was in the military in 2011 and her first response was prove it which is hard to do for the victim, because like I said, I didn't get the transcripts to the trial or the investigation. Um, the only information that I did have was the fact that I do get disability for military sexual trauma. To do so, I have to have a mental health exam and they pull all of my mental like health records from when I was in the military, as well as they pull my physical exam. And I had to turn in my SANE exam from Memorial Hospital. So it's not just a, oh, okay, you claimed you were raped. Here's here's a disability rating. You, right. They make you work for that disability rating. Um, oh, and they request, you have to request that your investigative transcripts be sent to the VA. So I actually had to email um, St. Louis, the military archives in St. Louis, to ask them to send the transcripts to the the veteran department of veterans affairs so even then i still don't get to see the information it goes from one party to the next i just am the middleman who has to request it so i told her that i would give her a copy of my of my medical record if she would sign a contract stating that she would not use it in a public forum because that that made me a little nervous. Like I didn't want all that information out there. And she told me that she didn't know what good that would do. And so then I said, well, you can request a copy of the transcripts from the military archives in St. Louis. And she said, well, I don't know how long that would take, but from on its face, this looks like just a political attack. And I said, I live in Kansas. I don't honestly give a damn about your election. It doesn't affect me one way or another. Um, I I literally have nothing to gain. And her response was that because I had nothing to gain, it made it even more suspicious. So then I reached out to uh, the incumbent, the income, the sitting representative, uh, Mm -hmm. the guy that she's running against. And um, I had posted that uh, what had happened and he reached out to me after that and he said, I'm terribly sorry that this happened to you. You know, is there anything that I can do to help? And I said, well, do you believe me? And he said, I absolutely believe you. I've seen this guy's character. I said, okay, well, your opponent does not. And so he asked if he could call me. Well, at the time that he called me, um, he was actually on the, he was texting back and forth with this man's ex-wife and she actually corroborated my story with a, the two of us had never talked before wow and so um that somewhat lit a fire under me because women who do not believe other women when it comes to this shit is a big problem yeah um, i don't know if so the whole vanessa gillen deal 
there is a there's a woman who teaches I think it's at Michigan Iowa some college she's high-ranking Air Force official um she posted on one of those posts that if she couldn't take a little bit of sexual harassment then she didn't need to be in the military that was her initiation into the good old boy club Mm. which is bullshit terrible and she should have been fired she should lose her job but apparently whatever educational institution that she belongs to said that that was her right to free speech and so they weren't going to do anything but it is that mentality right there that makes it really hard for victims to come forward because there's also a generation that is just like oh that's normal you should deal with it and it's not normal. you don't have to deal with it and that's in unfortunately not just the military a lot of different careers that that is um a, a lot more male driven um type of positions and careers is that you know, you, you, you either put up with it so that you can get where you need to be in your career as well, um, and shut your mouth. Or if you don't, then good luck having a job in that field ever again, or, you know, I mean, and that's the hard part is where the fight is against a mentality. Like it's not just against a policy. It's not just against a law like I mean writing a law would be fairly easy but you're fighting a mentality and a mentality that has been ingrained in into an institution for so long Mm -hmm. and so the idea of how do we change that well that starts at home right that starts with teaching our daughters that this is not okay that their body is their body I mean god I'm your daughters and your sons too though yeah Yeah. your sons they need to know so age appropriately, I've had to have the conversation with my son, like nobody touches you. Like mommy and daddy can wash you, but right. we don't touch you. And a doctor, only if mommy and daddy are present. Yeah. And it's terrible. Like I said, that that's a society that we live in, but that is the only way that I feel like we can change it is, is that all starts at home. We have to teach them real young. And, and teaching sons to that to respect women and to respect themselves and to respect you know um boundaries and um you know if there's any question in your mind and and here's the thing maybe to you know this this man like I I hate to even give him this platform um in that his name is being brought up, but, you know, clearly there is some issue there, mental illness or sociopath or, you know, those types of things is what you associate this type of pattern of behavior with. Um, And so it's our job as parents too to recognize things like that with our children when they're young, because, Yes, it can. I, you know, I, I mostly this is ingrained. So if they, you know, if this, a lot of times, if something happens to you when you're a child, um, unfortunately, sometimes you can become the predator as well. Um, so there's so many things of teaching and protecting our children and keeping them out of 
situations. Um, you know, I've always been that way with my girls and just not allowing. And, and unfortunately it sucks. I don't allow them to do certain things because I won't put them in that position. You know, um, I mean, as simple as, um, it took us a long time to let our girls stay the night anywhere. And, and it's not that I didn't feel like that I knew the parents or, or whatever, but it could be teenage brothers. It could be the father. It could be, even if I personally know that person, I just, you know, until my children, I feel have that power and they're empowered to make a sound decision. I mean, it is, it is us who has to help make those decisions and guide those decisions and um, whether it be boys or girls um, and, and knowing their boundaries. Agreed. We don't do sleepovers either. So I, I feel you. Yeah. <laughs> My son doesn't understand why, but we don't do sleepovers either. So yeah. So to wrap this up, I mean, we're already at one hour and 36 minutes. Um, and I, I don't want to cut it short and I want to make sure you tell every part that you want to tell. Um, I guess, is there anything you've left out that you feel is really important that you want to be heard? And then as far as like, what would be a message you would give young women about to go into the military? Um, and after hearing this, maybe they're like hesitant or something. Cause even though you went into the military, it's still a huge part of your life and you reference it a lot. So I guess another question is, how, what's the lingering feeling of the military for you? So it's three things. Uh, so, I mean, the big thing, the biggest thing right now is I, I want to create change because now I can. Now mm-hmm. I'm not tied down by, you know, a report or a first sergeant or whoever else. They can't tell me to shut up now. So I can get loud and hopefully I can get loud and hopefully I can create a lot of change. The second thing would be giving hope to somebody else who is in this scenario. Um, if you need help navigating the situation, if you need someone just to listen to you and believe you, if you need somebody to tell you to keep pushing forward, if you need advice on how to get over it, because I have done EMDR, I've done very specific sexual trauma counseling, which for victims of this, just a regular counselor is not what you need. Like you need a counselor who is experienced in sexual trauma because the effects of this are extremely lasting. And they mm-hmm. work in, I mean, they work your way into your future relationships, your future marriage. Like if my husband walks by and touches me on the back, just right, it still triggers. Yeah. And so being able to identify those triggers and stop them before they take over is, is a big coping skill that helps. Um, as far as women joining the military. So I kind of had this conversation with another lady. She absolutely did not want her daughters to go. So here's the thing. I have fought next to some of the most intelligent, most empowered, brave women that I know. Some of my best friends I served with in the military. Some incredibly just intelligent, great leaders, great motivators, very driven, especially in the medical field, know their shit. Um, I don't think that we should pull women out of the military. I don't think you should move us backwards in that nature. 
we fought long and hard to, I mean, like now we have, you know, we have a female Green Beret. We have female Rangers. We have females leading infantry units. Um, if you've ever researched the Israeli army, those women are badasses. I would never, ever, ever fight one. I wouldn't even talk shit to one in a bar. <laughs> and females bring a lot to the fighting force. Like we're incredible investigators. We lead empathetically because women are more naturally able to display empathy. We're incredible shooters. Women, like, what is it, 75% of the time are better shooters than males because we have better vision usually and we have more peripheral vision than a man does. Mm -hmm. We make excellent snipers. And going into foreign countries, there's a lot of foreign religions that don't allow their females to talk to males. So if that female has intelligence and there is no female around, we lose out on that intelligence. Right. Those are scenarios where you need a woman. So you just have to keep in mind that you do the best you can and you don't give them anything to use against you. So one of the best pieces of advice that I got in the military, and I got it real young. Um, God, I think I was a PFC at the time, so I was a private. I had a drill instructor pull me aside, and she told me that there were two kinds of female NCOs in the Army. There was the female who slept with someone to get where she was. Whether that was true or not, that was the perception, that she slept to get where she was. And then there was the female that was such a bitch that no one would ever consider sleeping with her. And that woman you knew earned her rank. And she told me that because I was nice and I got along with everyone and I smiled all the time. And some people could perceive that as flirty, whether it was flirty or not. Yeah, that's in the real world, too. That's what's unfortunate. I mean, not the real, not that the military is not the real world, but that <laughs> shit world. is everywhere. Yeah, you kind of have to be, and it's really sad, but you kind of have to, in your professional life, be a little bit harder than you would in your home life so that you don't give people, because they say perception is reality, but perception is really just your reality. It's not everyone's reality, but that going into the military is a fantastic piece of advice. And it worked out well for me because I made rank really fast and my soldiers definitely did not ever question whether or not I made rank because of that. Um, but find yourself also a circle of, of battle buddies that you can trust because that support system inside the military is everything. Like I said, there were two that stuck with me through the entire thing that I still talk to to this day that like I, I would go to war with those two in a heartbeat. And I know that those two would have my back. And those were just the two that I went through I mean, they were there for it. They were physically there for it. So they saw me on a daily basis. There are about five more that were in my prior unit that, you know, stayed in touch that we still talk to on a regular basis. We try to see each other every few years. Um, we're very involved in each other's lives, but they just weren't in my unit at the time. But they were a big sense of support. And don't be afraid to do what is right. Like, it is tough to have the unpopular opinion that something is going wrong and it's not being handled the way that it's supposed to be and to stand up in front of an officer and go, I'm going to hold you accountable for this. 
So your two options are to do what's right or I go above you. And that is, that's an option. It's not a popular one and it's hard, but it's, it needs to be done to hold, you know, military accountable. And then as far as my lasting feelings, my, like I said, is this isn't my cross to bear anymore. This is not my shame. This is not my guilt. That's his. That man will have his day. <laughs> I'm going to help him live his day just a little bit sooner if I have anything to say about it because I have now realized that I have a voice. But this is not, my service was still honorable. I led right. my soldiers honorably. I went overseas. I was part of a unit that saved lives. I was part of a unit that did, did some good things over there. Um, and regardless of whether we did anything or not, you know, we have soldiers that have lost the battle to PTSD. We did lose a few soldiers from our unit while we were overseas. So I can't look back on my military experience and think that it was anything less than, you know, honorable because those are still my brothers and sisters. And I did that and kept going in their memory, in their honor. And for everybody going forward, I guess, like that's, there's life on the other side of it. And unfortunately, you can let all of that eat you, or you can come out on the other side and you can hopefully try to create change. And so I'm going to go ahead and I guess do the second. And that can't quit looking at me like that. So <laughs> it's not all as honorable and sappy as it sounds, but I really wish I would have had somebody to tell me that it was all going to be okay when I was going through it. So uh, how can people reach out to you if they do need some support or direction or guidance or any questions? Um, how do they reach you? Through Instagram, Facebook? Uh, yeah, so on Instagram, I am at Native Roaming, and that's my photography business. So uh, since I've gotten out of the military, now I believe in fairy tales. And love. Yeah, do you want to plug yourself? <laughs> plug your business? <laughs> I'm probably still honestly just as naive as I was. Like I believe in love and I believe in happy endings and I believe in fairy tales. Only now I just get to live it on a much regular basis. Um, yeah. So uh, native at Native Roaming and on Facebook, I am Daedra, D-A-E-D-R-A, Lynn, L-Y-N-N. So my last name is not on there. Um, and then, yeah, like. I think it's pretty wide open. Most people can find me. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm the only Daedra Lynn. I'm, there might be one more. I don't know that there's a lot of us. So, so before we hop off, um, I'm, thank you for telling your story. Thank you for sharing. Um, it's important that, that you keep telling it and that it wasn't just a week of, you know, it getting out there and then it's just over, you know? Yeah. And so, um, I hope that it does continue to get traction. Hopefully, you know, this podcast will also help it get traction. Um, you know, we can always do another follow-up as well to can continue to share and Hannah and I help out with, you know, getting this, this out, um, because it is, so important and um and i really hope that there is change that that can be created for it me too yeah. wear a lot of turquoise turquoise is apparently the color for military sexual but i feel like they knew me when they decided that it should be turquoise. <laughs> like at least it goes with my outfit so that's a win but um 
I appreciate you guys, you know, letting me talk. Um, I guess I do think it's a thing that like not a lot of there's my husband hadn't even heard my whole story until I posted up that on Facebook. And the really sad thing is that after I did, about four more people from my prior unit came forward and said, I had this happen. And it, I mean, all of our stories weren't the same, but it's out there way more than I think people know. Uh, statistically, one in four women will be sexually assaulted in their life. Um, scary number. That yeah. is a scary number. Do you have, now that it was public and you did the, the press conference in Florida there, do you have people, random people reaching out to you yeah. at all from that? Yeah, um, I actually have, I have people that have messaged me on his behalf that he has, I guess, kind of started harassing some of these people um, to try to tell his side of the story. And they're like, yeah, no, we don't believe you. Um that they've reached out to me and showed me screenshots of things that he has said. And I've had people who've asked me, you know, if I could provide any sort of documentation or proof. Um, and a lot of them, a lot of messages about women who were assaulted in the military or even not in the military were just assaulted at some point in their life who were ready to tell their story or will never be ready to tell their story, but that, the big thing, and I, I love that they're reaching out. That's what I wanted to know is that those people are reaching out and that even if they're not ready to, maybe you can help guide them and talk to them. And then maybe eventually they will be ready. Yeah. Or at least get, get help. Because yes. It getting help. Be, yes. This can be such a dark self-created prison that can just ruin. I mean, it ruin it can ruin your your relationship with your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or even the way you treat your children um, and it becomes this vicious cycle that hurt people hurt people I don't believe that hurt people hurt people I believe that that is a victim's mentality that is you using your hurt to give you license to hurt somebody else mm -hmm. when you identify that you have been hurt and that there is a mental health issue at some point, you have to take responsibility for that. You need to go talk to somebody. You need to go take the steps to get better because you owe that to yourself. Like you owe it to yourself to go live your best life, to give your best self to your spouse and to give your best self to your parents or to your children and not perpetuate the cycle of abuse that keeps happening. Yep. So I, hurt people, hurt people is not not a thing that I get behind. I don't support that. I will call bullshit on that every single time and tell you that you need to go get counseling because yes. hurt people should help people. Mm -hmm. Not yes. because we understand it. Like I can now say that I can sympathize with you because I know exactly what you have been through. So the best thing, if you hear somebody tell this story, um, the best thing you can say is I hear you. I believe you and I support you. And that's been a big that's empowering that is super empowering for a victim to hear and not be questioned and it took me 11 years to hear that from people so I can't imagine how many others out there have been going for how long and have never heard those words so I think that's a good way to end it I hear you I believe you and I support you Deidre no thanks Anna. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do rate and subscribe to our podcast, Energy Never Dies.